Welcome to another episode of Right of Your Life, where life happens and life storytelling transforms it. Our show is brought to you by lifestorytelling.com. And guess what? You don't have to be a writer to write your life stories. Lifestorytelling.com will teach you how. If you've been through hell and lived to tell about it, or your family skeletons are poking out of the closet, you'll want to check it out at lifestorytelling.com. Welcome to another episode of Right of Your Life, where life happens and life storytelling transforms it. Our guest today is Michael Neely, a former professional actor and a medieval knight turned writer. He's written a book called The Art of Forgetting, which is a usable set of tools for you to uncover and unplug the life stories you've created that hinder your life's journey. Not only is Michael a masterful storyteller, he's also a masterful story eraser. He helps people unwind their past and open up to a better future. Michael, we've never had a medieval knight on our show before. (laughs) There's not many of us out there. (laughs) It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm excited to dig into this. I don't even know where to start first. Tell me about the medieval knight first. I'm really curious about that. Yeah, you know, my first profession was as an actor. And so right out of college, I was, you know, kind of struggling to see, okay, where where am I going to put down my roots? Where am I going to fit in? Film, television, stage, what is it? And at the time, some friends informed me that the Medieval Times restaurant, a, a dinner show with live jousting and sword fighting, was hiring down in the uh, Southern California area, Buena Park. And so I went in and applied, and, and the next thing you know, first I start out, I'm squiring, which a demeaning job. I mean, I'm in front of a thousand people picking up horse dung, <laughs> you know, for the night and handing him the sword and everything. But during the day, I was training in the sword fighting and horsemanship and learning to actually perform in the show as a knight. And eventually I, I did and, and then became the head knight and show manager and opened up multiple castles throughout the United States and then later went on to joust and sword fight for the New York Renaissance Fair. That is cool. How did you go from a knight to a writer? How did that happen? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting transition. So I, I want to put a little bit more emphasis back on the part that, yes, I was a knight and jousting and sword fighting, but really I was an actor. An actor, yeah. right. <laughs> and so as an actor, one of the things that you really have to master is is character development and character study. And so as I was learning to dig into the truth of a character, I was learning to dig into the truth of who I am. And so I was taking lots of courses in ontology, the study of being. And, you know, some of the great mentors along my way were Tony Robbins and uh, Gay and Katie Hendricks. And, you know, I was just getting this great wealth of information about the way we behave as humans. And ultimately, I started to formulate my own process and my own uh, stew, if you will, mm-hmm. that I felt like, okay, there, this has to get out of me. There's this, I, I really want to share what I'm learning, which I think is a little bit different. And, uh, and I want to take it out to the world and have an impact with it. And so that's kind of how it evolved. What were some of the first things that you wrote? Uh, I started out writing articles and I, I guess you could call them blogs, but they were getting picked up by, you know, places like Tiny Buddha uh, online magazine and Elephant Journal, mm-hmm. um, but I also, you know, I wrote some screenplays. <laughs> I guess that was one of the first bits where I really was still in the film world, and I wrote two screenplays that actually got produced. Excellent. Yeah, and so 
uh, you know, that was some of my early writing work. And then as it evolved, you know, I felt like, okay, there's a whole book in me and I really want to get it out. The book, the, your first book that you wrote, was that The Art of Forgetting? Yes, that's The, the Art of Forgetting. Tell me about that. What is The Art of Forgetting? Uh, it kind of uh, evolved from me having an experience in, uh, it started in the pharmaceutical industry, strangely enough. I, I was huh. working, yeah, after I quit acting, I shifted gears and worked in the pharma industry for a while. And one of the things, Stacy, I don't know if you're familiar with a double-blind study. In a double-blind study, the doctor who's administering the medication doesn't even get to know whether he's giving the patient the placebo or the actual drug. Right. And for me, at first glance, I was like, well, why does that matter? I mean, how can that have an impact on the patient's outcome? But statistics prove that it did. And so the more I looked at that, I thought, wow, you know what? We all have an impact on the people around us. So in other words, if I have an expectation, Stacy, that you're going to show up in the world if you're always late or <laughs> you're, you're cranky or whatever, if I start to have an expectation that that's the way you're going to show up, I've increased the chance, the percentage of odds that you will show up that way. Ah. And so it kind of bookends us. Now, we also do the same thing about ourselves. So in other words, if I continually say, yeah, I'm, I'm not a morning person. Well, as long as I keep saying that, I probably never will be a morning person. I'm cementing that into my life, into a form, a mold, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so the art of forgetting is about letting go of these stories that we create about ourselves, about the people around us, so that people can show up as they are in any given moment. Now, this, this seems like it's a little bit more than self-talk. Is it, is it deeper than that? It, it is deeper than that, in, in that, you know, sometimes we have these underlying stories that are running the show, and we don't even know that they mm. exist. And there's plenty of examples out there. For instance, if you know people who continually get in the same kind of relationship over and over again, even if it's a bad one, but they seem to be caught in that pattern. Right. And even though consciously they're saying, oh, I don't want to get in that kind of a relationship again, subconsciously something's creating that. And that's the part that's really running the show. Okay. So you're going to have to share a little secret with us. How do you get out of that? <laughs> Well, it's, it's kind of what the art of forgetting is all about. So instead of it just being, you know, hey, this is, you know, what's happening, I've created it as a workbook. So it gives you tools to put into practice to start to, I, I kind of think of it as erasing, but dismantling is probably a, a better word for it. And, mm -hmm. and so we kind of break down those existing stories. Just some of the small practices I can share with the listeners right now. For instance, when you go to brush your teeth, today. Use your opposite hand than you normally would. And it's just a small practice, but really what I have people do this for is to build an awareness that there is so much that we do in life on autopilot that I'm just trying to say, hey, disengage the autopilot, take over the steering wheel, and get back in control. And so when you brush your teeth with the opposite hand, just notice the differences. I mean, I can just share a couple right off the bat that you're going to have to pay attention, you know, otherwise you're right. poking yourself in the jaw and hurting your gums and something that you would normally do just automated. You really have to think about again and focus on and go, oh, that's what it feels like in the opposite hand. So your attention is drawn back into it. And so it's lots of little practices like that. And then we build up to larger ones that really help you to 
kind of erase the slate and approach the world clearly. Can you give us an example of one of the larger ones? So one of the things that I do when I meet with a client in person is that I will have them share a story with me, something that's got a grip in them. And it might take some digging to find where that is. But once we find it, then I'll have them script it out as though, you know, right, you're the writer the director, the producer, the star of your life movie. So share with me all of the pieces of story that hold this particular element in place. So they'll write and maybe, gosh, you know, I'll have them write for 30 minutes to an hour and it could be 10 pages or more. And then I have them read that story aloud back to me. And the first time they read it, I mean, I've had clients who just cry during it because it's just, it's so gripping. It's an emotional drama Mm -hmm. that they're, it's their movie of their life. And and then I'll have them read it a second time, and then a third time, and, and, and a fourth time. I have them keep reading it, and eventually I start to play in the background and make funny noises or sounds, or, or sometimes I'll even take it and read it to them in a funny way. And ultimately, through repetition, after a while, the story starts to lose its grip on them, and they start to realize, oh, my God, what a crock of crap. <laughs> right, mean, there's, right. There's no truth in it anymore. <laughs> and once it lets go, then they're like, whoa, I've been living in the belief of this stuff. Ah. And you get to see the craziness of it. So it's almost like a form of self-discovery. Yeah, yeah, on a very deep level. Right, on a very deep level. This is interesting. And you told me before that this is based on your own personal story and your life experience. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I don't know if this is a good time to share an excerpt from my book, but I had a story. My story was that women cheat on me, Mm -hmm. and this developed. I'll actually just read a little piece from the book. Great. Uh, Thank you. Sure. So this started when I was a junior in high school. My girlfriend and I were out on a hot date, and I'd saved up enough money to take her out to one of the town's finer dining establishments for her birthday. And I got dressed up in my nicest threads I had for a 17-year-old and even bought her flowers. And everything was going great until about halfway through the meal, she started to complain of not feeling well. Well, this went on for about 15 minutes before she asked me to take her home. And I'm like, no worries. Of course, I didn't want her to be out and about if she wasn't well. So off we went. Mm-hmm. However, the night was still young, as I was. And so I headed down to the local burger joint where you could almost always find some of the high schoolers hanging out on a Friday night. Twitter and Facebook didn't exist yet, and this was even pre-cell phones and PCs, you know, when we hung out and actually (laughs) talked face-to-face. Right. Yeah, and I ran into my best friend there and decided to sit down with him and steal some of his fries while, while he downed a cheeseburger. And I swear I was not there for more than 15 minutes when my girlfriend walked in with another guy. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, not only did she have the gall to lie to my face, but then she even had the audacity to show up in a well-known spot with someone else by her side. Oh, oh the gosh. shame, the disgrace. <laughs> okay, yes. okay, I'm exaggerating a bit, but just for fun. But, you know, it hurt at the time. It hurt a lot. And after a short confrontation, the relationship was immediately over. And, of course, the healing took quite a bit longer, but I eventually got over it. And that's the part from the book. But I go on to say that there were several times that this occurred over the course of, I would say, the next eight years that I was Mm -hmm. cheated on. And so what happened was each time it kind of solidified this underlying story. And then you know what happens next? And this is the bad part is then because you have this underlying belief system and your ego wants to be right. Right. Therefore, you will create the next relationship to match that 
And so mm. I would subconsciously start drawing women into my life that were going to cheat on me. Or if I drew a woman into my life that might not have cheated under normal circumstances, subconsciously, I probably helped to bring that about. Mm. Became a pattern. Absolutely. And, and so it was so important once I finally discovered, oh my goodness, you know, what's the common denominator in each of these relationships? Me. <laughs> I, was the, <laughs> I was the only guy who was in every relationship. And so I thought, wow, it's happening over here. What's going on with me? And so that's when I started to learn about how to erase my story and really get rid of that. And, and since then, I have not been in a bad relationship. I haven't been cheated on again. And it's just been wonderful. But that's just one little story that I had. I mean, obviously, I had others as well. And I think we all do. Right. Was there one moment in time when you discovered you, know, you could do this, you could write about it, you could see that pattern and change it? Or was it just generally, uh, gradually? Yeah, I think it happened gradually because, you know, at first I didn't even think about sharing it. I think what really shifted for me when I decided, hey, I got to write about this and I'll take us back to the pharma industry again, which was just about seven years ago, that you know, I noticed that as an industry in pharma, they spend millions of dollars every year sending sales teams off to some place to do a, a week-long sales training or two weeks. And one of the things I noticed was that you'd go on the sales training and you get back and you'd be all gung-ho to take this newfound wisdom out into the field and tackle the world. And about two weeks later, you'd be back to your same old, same old. And, and I started to look at that and wonder, why is that? And why do they have to keep retraining salespeople every six months or every year and have them just fall back into the old patterns? And that's when I really started to realize as well. And there's a name they call it in the industry. It's called the suntan effect. It's like you go on vacation, you get a great tan, and two weeks later, it fades back to your, right. your old way. And, and so that was a similar thing there. It was, it's the suntan effect. You, you bring on this new information. And, and where I started to relate it to my writing was I realized, oh, the same thing happens in the world of self-help. I'd taken lots of courses, and I would get really gung-ho about some new information. And then a few weeks later, I'd be back to my same old habits. And so that's when I decided, ah, oh, this is what's happening. We're trying to put new information on an old system. Ah. And I kind of equate it like this. Imagine you've got a chalkboard and your life story is written there. And now you want to write a new way of being, but you're trying to write it in between all of your existing story that's up there. Right. And so, right. so I thought, wow, if we just kind of erased that and we then have room to put in a new story then our life's going to be so much better. And so that was when I decided, okay, this, it's time I started writing about this. Interesting. Now, one of the things you shared with me was the mind and body connection and the illustration of the home and the couch. Can you share that with us? Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, so it kind of relates a little bit to what I was just saying, but I love that it can go. we can go a little deeper with it because imagine this, your mind body is your home and you get to furnish it. And quite honestly, it's been being furnished for us since we were very young. You know, you start to learn these things that become the furniture of your mind, if you will, from your parents and from society mm -hmm. in general. And you've got this mind-body home, which you've got furnished, and that is your lifestyle. And then one day you decide, I'm going to change. I'm going to make a shift. I'm going to quit smoking, or I'm going to lose weight, or start exercising. Well, whatever that shift you may want to make happens. And, and I like to equate that to new furniture. So you see this great new couch, and you go, oh, wow, that couch looks really cool. I think I'm going to get that. And you bring it home, 
and you put it in the living room, but you realize, oh, crap, I didn't get rid of the old couch. Well, let me just put that down in the basement or the rec room or whatever. And so you get rid of the old couch, and you're trying out your new couch, and you're sitting on it for a few weeks and going, yeah, life is good. You know, this couch is great. And, and after a while, you go, oh, I kind of miss the old couch. I think I'll just go downstairs and sit on that for a while. And so you go and you sit in the old couch and you go, wow, this is really comfortable. I kind of like this couch. Why did I, what's that new one all about anyway? And, you know, the next thing you know, you bring the old couch back upstairs. You toss the new couch out onto the sidewalk to give away or sell it on eBay or whatever. And, and you're uh-huh. back to the old way of being because you never cleared out the furniture in the first place. And so that's the first step in anything is first clear out, make room for the new you to come into the world. That's got to be tough, though, because we like our old stuff. We We like, (laughs) (laughs) And you think the first step of getting rid of those old couch and those old habits and those ways of thinking is to write them down, is get them out physically on paper? I think that certainly helps. And one of the things about that, and let me just throw something at you, Stacey, that just mm-hmm. to let you know some of the old furniture that we're packed with, you know, we look at like, well, we even say the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And we still say that even though we know it's not true. The sun doesn't rise and set. <laughs> we're simply spinning. It goes around and around, yeah, right? Yeah. We go around, yeah, right? Yeah. And we're just spinning on the planet. And yet, we, because people used to believe that that's what happened, we're still using it in our languaging. Right. And so there's so many things like that that we hold on to in our languaging. And that's why I think it's important to write stuff down so you start to see the difference. There's plenty of examples out there of adages and idioms that we live with nowadays. But a good one that I like to use is, you know, you've heard the expression a million times, money doesn't grow on trees. Right. Well, it does, quite honestly. I've told my kids that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the truth is it does. Not only does money grow on trees, money is trees. I mean, the trees make lumber that we sell. They make paper that we sell. Right, you know, right. they, they bear fruit that we sell. So money really does kind of grow on trees. It's just right. there's so many expressions like that that really aren't necessarily true. I think it's super important to write stuff down because then you can start to kind of look at it and go, oh, is this really true? And then separate out uh, the wheat from the chaff, if you will, decide, okay, this part of it may be true, but this really isn't. And start to really get into that. And so, yeah, writing it down is, I think, very valuable. I like that because it's almost like a reflection of you, but yet it's not inside of you. It's outside so you can see it Mm -hmm. and you can recognize it maybe for what it is a lot clearer than if it's just rolling around in your head or stuffed at the back of your head and and you're not even thinking about it at all, but you can see it for what it is. And like you said, dismantle your story. I like that. Absolutely. And I'm important distinction here that I want to share with the listeners as well, Stacy, is that so frequently we see something happen and that may be factual. Like let's say, for instance, you know, just uh, toss out something potentially from a movie. You see a, a woman walk up and slap a man. Mm-hmm. And immediately, if there were 10 people who witnessed that, you could ask them, all 10 of them, what they just saw and they'd probably each have their own story about it. But the right. truth is, a woman walked up and slapped a man. That is all that just happened. But when you ask people, because we are meaning-making machines, everybody's going to have a story, and one's mm-hmm. going to be, oh, she was so angry at him because he just cheated on her or something like that. Another one's going to say, well, you know, he made a rude remark or whatever. Everybody's going to create story. And so 
the, I think this is a value of writing stuff down as well, is that often when you start to write it down, you can separate, okay, here is what really happened, the fact of what happened, and this is the part that I'm making up about what happened. Because we do. We fill in the gaps. Oh, yeah. Spicing that story up with what we think Absolutely. think happens. That's for some of the things that are, are hurtful, right? Or some of the things that are difficult or tough to reflect on. But, I mean, there's some great stuff in there, too. And I don't want to forget that. How does that play into this whole art of forgetting or, or reflecting back and, and writing about your life? Yeah, that's a great question, Stacey. I'm really glad that you brought that up. And, and that's why I call it the art of forgetting it's because it is an art. It's not just um, we're going to erase your mind and have you ah, everything. I like that. You want to artfully, selectively choose what's not going to go into the painting of your life. And so get rid of the stuff that doesn't support you, that is not serving you, and hang on to the good stuff. How would somebody get started? I mean, would you recommend somebody write every day or how do they pick the stories they write? How would they get started on this sort of thing? Gosh, to get started with working with, like if you were working with my book as a workbook, I would say the first thing you want to do is really dig to the root of your story. So it's one thing, I'll, I'll give a real world example here. I have a client who has kind of hit a financial ceiling as far as he feels like he can't really earn any more money. And so as I started to dig in at his story, he was even amazed at some of the stuff that came back to him. And he recalled an event when he was six years old, and it was Christmas time. And some carolers had come to their house, and so they were uh, standing at the door listening to the carolers. And he noticed some other children who were dressed really poorly peeking in through the window and looking at their presence that he had under his tree. And these kids were looking at them with awe and pointing. And, and the story that he made up in his mind about it, now, again, we want to separate fact from story. So what I shared mm -hmm. was just the fact of what he saw. But the story he made up was that he felt sorry for those children, that they didn't have anything, that they were probably going home to a house with no presence and no happiness. Ah. And he felt bad about that. And so now this story had gripped him. I mean, we're talking six years old here. And as he recalled that, he realized, oh, wow, he's got this story going on. The, the underlying meaning of it is that he doesn't feel it's right for him to earn so much when there are so many in the world who have so little. Ah. Sometimes these stories are really hard to find on your own. I, I would recommend that you work with a coach. There are lots of coaches who I think really specialize in really helping you to dig deep into what your underlying stories are. It's certainly my area of specialization, and I know there are other coaches who do that, even if they have a little different technique on it. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can find it on your own, that's great, but really look back at your history and go, where did this belief come from? And, mm -hmm. and that can be the challenge, but that's certainly worthwhile, and start writing about it. Excellent. Well, I am certainly glad you graduated from Knight to writer <laughs> to personal development coach and creator of this program. This is really very interesting and very useful. You have something to give away to our listeners, correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that guided meditation? Yeah, so it's great for either a beginner or an advanced meditator, and it's really about the practice. It's a guidance so that you can relax more, kind of slow down the thoughts that are going on. And I break this particular meditation up into two parts. And what that means essentially is that at about 15 minutes into it, I give you the option to stop. 
because someone who's never really meditated before, that might be kind of pushing their limit. And for those who have meditated before or simply really enjoy meditating and are doing well, the meditation will continue for another 15 minutes so they could get a full 30-minute meditation set out of it. Does that help you write in any way after you meditate, or do you meditate just to clear your mind, or what? how do you do that? I think it's a huge help because frequently, you know, what goes on with writer's block, it's just that, let me use this analogy since we're in this day and age of the computer. If you had a whole bunch of programs open on your computer, your RAM, your random access memory, starts to get a little bit cluttered. And it's kind of like clearing the desk. And so meditation for me is kind of like rebooting my computer so that I can start fresh and go, okay, now from a clear mind, what wants to come through me as far as my writing goes? That's good. That's interesting. That's very effective for me. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing your information. This has been fabulous and extremely helpful. Well, it's my pleasure, Stacy, and I really appreciate what you're up to in the world. I think you're doing some great work, and, and I'm real privileged to be on your show. Great information from Michael Neely. At the end of each episode, I peek into the Life Story Toolkit and share information on one particular tool that you might consider using if you're writing or would like to start writing about your life. The Life Story Toolkit is sponsored by LifeStoryTelling.com, where you can find your life theme, discover where to start writing, and craft your life into a compelling story. This episode's Life Story Toolkit features the Visual Thesaurus. The Visual Thesaurus is an interactive dictionary and thesaurus which creates word maps that blossom with meanings and branch to related words. Its innovative display encourages exploration and learning. It's like a mind map. Say you have a meaning in mind like happy. The Visual Thesaurus helps you find related words from cheerful to euphoric. The best part is the Visual Thesaurus works like your brain and not a paper-bound book. You'll want to explore just to see what might happen. You'll discover and learn naturally and intuitively. You'll find the right word, write more descriptively, free associate, and gain a more precise understanding of the English language. You can find it at visualthesaurus.com. That's all we have for today. Last episode, America's crisis coach, Phaedra Koenig, interviewed me and we discussed divorcing a sociopath. So if you've had some tough life circumstances or are going through that right now, you might want to go back and have a listen. Next week, we'll interview Kylie Dunn, who changed her life by watching and implementing a year of TED Talks. Be sure to check out the show notes on every single episode. We have free resource downloads at rightofyourlife.com. We love interacting with our listeners on social media. We're on Pinterest, Facebook, and just about anywhere you can hold a great virtual conversation. Our handle is Right of Your Life. Some of our listeners like supporting the arts. If you do too and want to support this podcast, You can do it by sharing each episode on your social networks, and you can head over to our special page at patreon.com slash rightofyourlife and become a patron. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash rightofyourlife. Both of these help us reach many more people who could benefit from writing about their lives. We hope that today you have 
the right of your life.